we are in the book of Judges, and we've been studying this character of, of Samson, uh, who, on the outside, his outer reality didn't always match up with who he really was. Uh, and I think that's not a, an uncommon thing for us. I want to uh, read an article from, I don't know what it's from, from the newspaper recently. It's about a lady living in Southern California. From the outside, Nancy's townhouse looks like any other in her Southern California neighborhood. Manicured shrubs line the road and flower boxes are planted in neat rows. But just steps from this idyllic setting is a scene of chaos. Piles of trash, books, and magazines dating back three decades, spoiled and expired food, and heaps of junk and debris. Nancy is a hoarder. I think the first time I even heard about hoarding was probably five or six years ago. Uh, a friend of mine's family had unfortunately rented, leased some rental property to someone who turned out to be a hoarder, and they had home videos of what this house looked like with the 30 cats and the food that never got cleaned up and everything. Uh, it really was a disaster area. And, and now hoarding is almost, I don't want to say it's mainstream, like we're all doing it, but it's, we, we, we know much more about it, right? Because the television series Hoarders has been on for, for six years now. And I use this story because I think it's a good picture of the way sin and addiction can operate in all of our lives. Because how do, how do hoarders get started? How do, you know, how do that started? Do they just order a house full of junk from Amazon? Like, I think I'm going to be a hoarder. Like, and then, you know, that's what, $5,000 and we'll ship it to you. No, that, that starts one and happens one decision at a time. Minute by minute, day by day, week by week, year by year. They bring more and more in, but they never take anything out and eventually you have this house full of trash and that's really the way sin and addiction can work in our lives starting out very small but but snowballing over time and eventually wrecking our lives another way i think hoarding is a good picture of sin and addiction is in the fact uh, that sin and addiction has this ability to stay hidden i mean think about what the the story said about nancy's house Nancy's townhouse looked like any other in her Northern California neighborhood. Nobody knew. Unless you went in the house, you never would have known what was going on inside of there. Now, obviously, sometimes the effects of sin and addiction, they're just out there, right? They're just obvious. It's, it's plain what's, what's going on in somebody's life. Everybody can see it. But some of us are better at hiding what's going on and, and keeping it beneath the surface of our lives. From the outside, everything looks okay. Everybody's smiling in the pictures. Everything in the face, our Facebook feed says we're having a wonderful life. We may even be at the pinnacle of our profession and everybody respects us. But inside, the me when nobody else is around, maybe the me when I'm with my friends and not my family, is a very different person. Well, we are wrapping up the study of, of Samson today. Uh, Samson, we've seen as this Old Testament judge. He was a ruler of Israel. He was a little bit of an action hero. But the reality was that his successes in, in ways were merely camouflaged for who he really was on the inside. He was riddled by sin, and he was in this cycle in which he was 
steadily spiraling downward, much like the nation of Israel itself. And so when we look at this text this morning, I want us to be thinking about three things. Uh, the descent into addiction, the camouflage of success, and then the awakening of faith. So let's read this together. This is God's word. Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and of the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. After this, he loved the woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to him, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, till the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes of his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> father, this is your word, uh, even though it is ancient and in some ways foreign to us. Uh, it is your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would speak through it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, I guess we've been looking at Samson a couple of weeks, and last week we saw that Samson, as much as he may seem like kind of an Old Testament superhero, we saw that he was self-absorbed, he wasn't teachable, and he was enslaved by his appetites. And this week, it's more the same thing. Uh, right off the bat, we read at the beginning of the chapter that Samson goes to see a prostitute. Uh, one of the, the appetites we saw last week that ruled Samson was his sexual appetite. And you see this week that not only are we going to get more of the same this week, Samson is actually becoming more promiscuous and more reckless as well. I mean, think about back to the last chapter, uh, it, it, it began with Samson choosing a wife based strictly on her physical appearance. Uh, we saw him disregarding the fact that this woman he had chosen was not a believer in God. She was a Philistine. And yet he wanted her anyway because of her physical attractiveness. So he demanded that his parents get her for him as a wife. Um, he did everything kind of, he's not the best example in this, but at least he wanted to marry her, right? At least he had that much right. Like, I would like to have this woman to be my wife. This week, he doesn't even bother. Doesn't matter that he's already married, whatever has happened with that, we're not really sure. 
it, it doesn't matter. He, he sees a prostitute and he goes in to see her. More and more, Samson is controlled by his sexual appetite and he's getting more and more reckless about satisfying that appetite. He's actually gone to see this Philistine woman in the capital city of the Philistine nation. And he's allowed himself to be surrounded, but doesn't seem too concerned about it. He's more and more promiscuous and more and more reckless. And yet, once again, he manages to get out of the situation. Uh, in verse 4, he's moved on to the next woman, this woman known as Delilah. And it seems pretty obvious when you read this, she's out to get him, right? You're kind of reading this going, what, are you listening to what she's saying, Samson? Because listen to what she says, verse 6. Tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound. Okay, that, a hint maybe, verse 10. Tell me how you might be bound. Verse 13, you've been lying to me, haven't you? And now, now tell me how you might be bound. And then verse 15, she kind of lays down the killer argument to get a man to say something. You don't really love me, do you? You, you, you don't really love me. If you loved me, you would tell me the source of your strength. Now, at this point, you know, we don't know exactly what's going through Samson's mind, such as it is, but, but either he's so wrapped up in Delilah that he's, uh, he would rather tell her anything instead of risk losing her, or he's really beginning to think that he's the source of his own strength and it doesn't have anything to do with God. You know, I can, I can have Delilah and I can tell her what she wants to hear and I'm still going to be able to get out of here in the morning. Or maybe he's thinking, well, God's rescued me every other time, even though I've, I've broken my Nazarite vows a couple times already. Let, let's push it one more time. Maybe God will, will come through for me yet again. And where does this all lead? Verse 21. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. That's where it all led, but, but where did it all start? It didn't start when he went down to see Delilah. It started back in chapter 14 when he saw a woman, and he was simply attracted to her and demanded to have her because she was right in his eyes, because she was physically pleasing to him. And over the course of his life, Samson continued to operate in that way. If I see something that's pleasing to me, I'm going to take it. And so he's ruled over the course of his life by his appetite, decision by decision, moment by moment, day by day, year by year. He breaks his Nazarite vow by coming into contact with a dead body. He breaks it by uh, imbibing in alcohol. He doesn't think anything about it. And now in the final violation of that vow he had made, he allows his head to be shaved. He's indulged his appetites and ignored his God. Until finally, God removes his hand and says, okay, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of this, of where your sin is taking you. Now, two things by way of implication, uh, application. Do you see kind of, in the life of Samson, how this descent into addiction works. No one makes you, no one orders a house full of junk and becomes a hoarder overnight. It happens one decision at a time, one choice at a time. 
the, the choices you and I make every day to guard my eyes or to not guard my eyes, to tell a lie or to tell the truth, to speak gently or to answer harshly, those things add up over time and they determine who we are. Do you see how it works? And do you see where it leads when that's unchecked? I think one of the scriptures that we really ought to be impressing on our own hearts and uh, on our children's hearts as they come to an appropriate age is, is Proverbs chapter 5. And I, and I want to read just a little bit of Proverbs chapter 5 to you. Uh, beginning in verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. And then now in verse 22, the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Uh, several years ago, when I was growing up, one of the men in our church had a friend. I think it was his best friend. who had an affair. And one morning, the husband of the woman he was having an affair with walked in on them and shot him dead. He will die for his lack of discipline. In that case, very literally led astray by his own great folly. There's a, a rather famous article, I guess at least in preaching circles, from a, from a 1982 issue of Leadership Magazine that chronicles uh, a man's hidden battle with sexual addic uh, addiction. And it was orig originally written in 1982, and I was reading it in a, in a 1992 issue. And one of the, it was a reprint, and, and one of the kind of funny but at the same time sad things was written in an introduction to the article where the, the guy said, with the VCR, lust is that much easier to pursue in a respectable manner. With the VCR, eh, let's not worry about high-speed internet. Uh, one of the things that, that for the writer of this article really was a, a defining and redeeming moment in ways for him in, in, toward the end of his 10-year struggle with sexual addiction was that he went and he began to confess his struggles to a more mature believer. And as he was confessing, this more mature believer, or so he thought, broke down and just began to weep. And he's like, what, what's wrong with you? What's going on? This man he was confessing to was trapped in an even deeper struggle with the same sort of thing. He had tried every kind of sexually deviant act you could think of uh, because, you know, the C.S. Lewis quote again, lust is uh, an, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing 
pleasure, an ever-diminishing ever return. And so he kept trying thing after thing to get that same feeling again, so that now he was at a point in his life where he carried around with him a list of prescriptions for the various diseases he had contracted over the years, and he would get these filled when he was out of town so as to remain anonymous. He still hadn't been able to come clean about it. Do you see where sin and addiction can lead and what it can snowball into? The Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. Do you see how it works? Do you see where it leads? And then secondly, do you see the danger of presuming either you're always going to be able to get out of your own mess by your own strength or in thinking that God is somehow going to always bail you out? Uh, Samson's hair is, is cut off in verse 20, or is cut off within the verse 20, it says that when the Philistines came, what does Samson do? He wakes up and he says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. I, I still got this. And then he says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Uh, you may be wrestling with a, a secret sin of some sort, uh, a secret addiction, and you may have escaped the, the real consequences of that up until this point. But don't presume upon the grace of God. Uh, don't, don't presume that it's always just going to work out okay. Uh, confess to somebody. Get help from somebody. Um, don't let your, your shame and your guilt stop you from owning what's going on in your life. Because if, if you don't, if you don't arrest that descent into addiction, there may very well come a day when God will leave you to the consequences of your sin. Well, we've seen the descent, but you have to ask, why didn't Samson see what was going on? Why was he so blind to this? Now, now certainly he's blinded by his appetites, right, as we can be. But I think he's also blinded by his success because every other time what's happened, he's been able to successfully fight off the Philistines. Uh, and, and he wasn't exactly walking the straight and narrow in those situations. So he's thinking, hey, it's still going to be okay. Everything's going to work out. I've always been successful in spite of the sin in my life. See, success has this way of working like camouflage, of making it look like everything's okay from the outside, of, of hiding the spiritual sickness and decay that can be happening on the inside of us. It can hide it from ourselves and from other people as well. Uh, just this last week, a pastor of a megachurch somewhere in Florida uh, resigned from a church he started in 1985, which has 20,000 members and meets in 10 different places um, because of a moral failing. But don't you know it looked like everything was going okay? Because if you're successful, if you can win games, all right, if you can win games, whatever winning games looks like in your profession and in your life, that can hide what's going on on the inside from other people. 
And more importantly, he can hide it from ourselves. But I think there's something else going on here as well. There's something else that can hide the, the hoarding that's going on inside our hearts, the spiritual decay that's on the inside of our hearts. It's not just the camouflage of, religion, of, of success, it's also the camouflage of religion. Uh, Samson, for everything he's done, he still expects God to show up and, and bail him out. Even though he doesn't act like a believer, even though he doesn't live like a believer, he identifies himself as a believer. You know, if they had come around and taken the census, right, and they said, check your religious preference, Samson would have said, Jewish believer in the God of the Bible. Yeah, that's, he would have identified himself as that person, even though his life was not the life of that person. Uh, Ross Dufat, whose name I can never pronounce right, but, but he, he writes a column for the New York Times. Uh, and, and listen to what he wrote recently. He said, earlier this year, a pair of demographers released a study showing that regions with heavy populations of conservative Protestants had higher than average divorce rates, even when controlling for poverty and race. Right? Jerry said, regions heavily populate with heavy populations of conservative Protestants, just people like us, had higher than average divorce rates. He goes on to say, their finding was correct but incomplete. As the sociologist Charles Stokes pointed out, practicing conservative Protestants have much lower divorce rates and practicing believers generally divorce less frequently than the secular and unaffiliated. But the lukewarmly religious are a different matter. What Stokes calls nominal conservative Protestants who attend church less than twice a month have higher divorce rates even than the non-religious. And you can find similar patterns with other indicators. Out-of-wedlock births, for instance, are rarer among religious engaged evangelical Christians, but nominal evangelicals are a very different story. And he goes on to try to kind of flesh out some of the reasons for that. And one of the reasons he came up with this, he says, when, when kind of the heart of Christianity has died out, but you still have this sort of shell of it left. He said, perhaps religious impulses could survive in dark forms rather than positive ones, leaving structures of hypocrisy intact and ratifying social hierarchies without inculcating virtue, charity, or responsibility. He uses all these big words. Anyway, uh, it, it isn't hard to see places in American life where these patterns could be at work. Among those working class whites whose identification, excuse me, among those working class whites whose identification with Christianity is mostly a form of identity politics, for instance, or among second generation Hispanic immigrants who have drifted from their ancestral Catholicism, are in African-American communities where the church is respected as an institution without attracting many young men on Sunday morning. The one thing that really jumped out at me from all of that was he talked about people for whom Christianity is just a form of identity politics. People for whom Christianity is I watch Fox News, I'm against homosexuality, I'm from South Carolina, 
And so, of course, I'm a Christian. If the census comes around because I, I identify with those things, and I go to church every once in a while, I'm going to check the box as Christian. Uh, one guy who was commenting on this column wrote that the column reveals a deeply broken Southern religious culture, one in which too many churches spend more time bemoaning an alleged deterioration of society's moral fabric than they do focusing on the one who redeems us from our personal deterioration. Um, and, and I say this as one, as, as a son of the South, but the South is filled with people who would identify themselves as Christians. When it comes time to check the box on the census, I'm, I'm checking Christianity. Who would identify themselves as Christians, but who are just mad and outraged at the sins of the culture around them while they're blind to their own sin and at the same time confident of their own standing before God. And so they have this shell of religion this shell of Christianity, but there's no gospel in it. There's no grace in it. There's no understanding of their own need for a Savior. Completely missing is the one who redeems us from our personal deterioration. See, success can camouflage our true spiritual condition, um, which is, you know, as, as we get to the place where we select elders, we need to be wary of that because don't churches tend to elect successful people to be in leadership without necessarily examining their hearts. Success can camouflage our hearts. But living where we live, we probably ought to be more concerned with religion camouflaging our hearts and camouflaging our true spiritual condition. We've seen the descent. We've seen the possibility of camouflaging who we really are, but I want us to see finally is, is the awakening of faith in the midst of, of all of that. Look at verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right on the other, and his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. In the past, when Samson got himself into these situations, he always just assumed that he was going to be strong. Or he presumed that God was going to bail him out of the situation. Like, God's going to help me, I'm Samson. But now for the first time, we see Samson realizing his weakness, realizing his inability, actually crying out to God for help. Uh, this isn't the same Samson who in the only other prayer of his that we have recorded demanded that God get him some water. This is a humbled Samson who finally realizes the true source of his strength. And so this story of Samson ends with this imperfect deliverer beginning to save Israel, as sinful as he is, beginning to save Israel from her enemies. Now, I've, I've mentioned before that a lot of commentators think that the reason the book of Judges was written was kind of as an apologetic for why Israel needed a king. Like, these things are so crazy with Judges and, and how everything was. We need a righteous king 
to lead us. But as you read, continue to read through the Bible, you see that even the kings weren't good enough. Because the kings couldn't deal with a real problem. The kings couldn't deal with people's hearts. And so both the judges and the kings leave us longing for someone better. They leave us longing for a better deliverer, a better judge, a better ruler, a better king. We need a better Samson. Uh, someone who also died delivering his people from their enemies. And that's what we remember this week. Holy Week. Palm Sunday. Good Friday. We remember that the better Samson, the better Savior, the better Deliverer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The one that the Old Testament leaves you longing for has come. Uh, like Samson, Jesus was bound. Like Samson, Jesus was betrayed by somebody who was close to him. Like Samson, Jesus was tortured and publicly mocked. Like Samson, Jesus died with his arms stretched out. And like Samson, Jesus appeared to have lost to his enemies. But in his death, the reality was that Samson brought down the temple of this false god of the Philistines. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated Satan and delivered his people from the sinfulness of their own hearts. The Southern Christian culture tells me that the people around me need to straighten up and fly right before this whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket. Jesus tells me that I'm the one that's weak and sinful and prone to addiction, but that he came to save people who are weak and sinful and prone to addiction. Not the strong, not the healthy, not the self-sufficient, not the successful, but the ones who, like Samson, finally own their own weakness and cry out to one who is ready and able to hear them and save them. You know, in Samson's life, it took him bottoming out before he realized he wasn't the man, he wasn't the savior, he needed a savior. In Samson's life, it took him bottoming out to realize that the savior he needed wasn't a beautiful woman to fulfill his sexual appetites, the Savior he needed was God himself. Have you realized that? Have you realized that? Let me pray for us. God in heaven, um, we pray that we would see ourselves as we are and that we would own that, and instead of relying on ourselves as we are so prone to do, instead of camouflaging that with the uh, clothing of success or religious busyness, that even today you might move some of us to confess who we are and to cry out for a Savior, because we know that you have provided one in Jesus Christ who is ready and willing to save us. 
he loved sinners so much that he came to die for them. God, would you help us to see that and to turn to this Jesus? We pray it in his name. Amen.